Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 734 with Dr. Amishi Ja. You may have heard that our attention spans are shrinking, getting smaller and smaller in the midst of digital distractions proliferating everywhere. And whatever are we to do? Well, Dr. Amishi Ja busts some myths and sets us straight. She is on the front lines doing the science on attention to help us figure out how indeed can we focus better, handle distractions better. This is one of the top things people ask for, and she delivers the goods. You'll learn, one, the biggest myth about our attention spans. Two, the four reasons your attention is getting hijacked. And three, the three systems of attention and how to train them. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, please drop on by awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP734. And if you are new, welcome. I recommend you check out some cool stuff over at awesomeatyourjob.com from the 10 Days to Winning at Work free email course to the free summary email gold nuggets that give you the actionable wisdom of the guest and something you could read in about two or three minutes, as well as the vault of all such summaries, the full text transcripts. It's a lot of good stuff over at awesomeatyourjob.com. And here's some good stuff about Amishi. Dr. Amishi Ja is a professor of psychology at the University of Miami. She serves as the director of contemplative neuroscience for the Mindfulness Research and Practice Initiative, which she co-founded in 2010. She received her PhD from the University of California, Davis, and her postdoctoral training at the Brain Imaging and Analysis Center at Duke University. Dr. Jaw's work has been featured at NATO, the World Economic Forum, and the Pentagon. She's received coverage in the New York Times, NPR, Time, Forbes, and many more. You can learn more about Dr. Jaw at amishi.com slash lab. That's A-M-I-S-H-I dot com slash lab. Big thanks to Amishi for sharing her wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Amishi. Amishi, welcome to How to Be Awesome at Your Job. It's great to be here. Well, I'm excited to chat with you about focus and attention. That comes up a lot from listeners. And, and at first, I was hoping you could settle this for me once and for all. These goldfish attention spans, human attention span shrinking, being worse than that of a goldfish. Is this a myth? How is this measured? How do we even know <laughs> the status of the American attention span this day and age? Great question. And the answer is no, we do not have the attention span of a goldfish. We are stable in our attention. It has not shrunk. 
<laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, there's nothing really wrong with our attention, you know, and that's the sort of paradox of this moment is that oftentimes we feel like our attention is in crisis, but frankly, our attention systems are working perfectly. And to answer your question about how we know is because we as a cognitive neuroscientists who study attention have been using the same type of basic attention task for decades, about four or five decades now. And we haven't seen a blip or a change since the advent of the internet and, and the advent of, of smartphones and their prevalence. Nothing's really changed. We're still pretty much the same brain we've been for quite some time. And what is the attention task that you use? There's a whole bunch of them, but one example would be where we, for example, uh, would have people come into the lab and their task is to sit in front of a computer screen and they see a series of digits on the screen kind of appearing one, let's say one every second or so, Mm -hmm. and press the button every time you see a digit, except if that digit is three. And when you see a three, withhold your response. Yeah. But the threes only appear about Uh, about 5% of the time. So that's one example. And what happens is people are terrible at this task and they've always been terrible at this task because, you know, it seems pretty simple to just look at a digit on the screen and press a button. But we are very much prone to what's called mind wandering or internal distractibility. And that rate of internal distractibility is pretty stable. It's a high number, about 50% of our waking moments, Mm -hmm. we can get hijacked away from the task at hand. But that number has not gone up since, like I said, cell phones, internet, et cetera. And then there's other ways we can do it, too, uh, looking at things called working memory, where we're just looking at sort of the the cache or RAM, if you will, of your uh, mind, your internal capacity to have a scratch space. That also has not changed over time. Well, you know, I am just enough, enough of a dork. So if you'll indulge me, I, I'd love to know <laughs> all of these because I was I went down this rabbit hole of research associated with the Stroop word color test. Ooh, yeah. And I even found a game on the uh, the iPhone called Stroop, which lets you play red, green, red, yeah. <laughs> you know, b- because it, for listeners not in the know, it might show the word red written in a green font color, and you have to select the font color from options, which may also be mixed. So it, it, it's tricky for your brain to attend to the thing and subdue or, or ignore the other thing you might naturally do. And so and so that's just kind of fun. I don't know if I'm actually doing something good for my brain by playing this repeatedly and trying to beat my score. Well, you tell me, is that a helpful activity? <laughs> I love that you're interested in the Stroop task. And yes, just to just to like to refresh people uh, in, ter- in terms of what this task is, because it's a classic task of attention. And what we're doing is unnaturally making your brain go to war with itself. Mm-hmm. So that the task itself is, yes, you'll see a series of words on a screen and your job is to press a button indicating the color of the font and do that as fast as possible. Most of the time when the font color is presented and it's some all X's or all O's, we have no problem with this. We just press the button to indicate the color. But when we make it go to war with itself, we're actually causing your brain to have to inhibit a very, very natural and automatic process, which is reading. Mm -hmm. So now we're going to present those words, like you said, in the letters of a color word. So the word yellow uh, would be in orange font or something like that, right? So there's a conflict there. Your job is to detect the font color, but the word yellow is so prominent that you want to say yellow and that you'd be wrong. So it absolutely is engaging a very specific kind of attention process, uh, executive control, 
But if you keep doing it over and over again, probably you'll get better at the task I and am. not much else. Not much else. <laughs> I was hoping it correlate to something. <laughs> yeah. And that's the thing about the brain. It's a, it's a smart, smart organ, and it will get very specific in its ability to maximize learning. But it's also very context specific. So now if I give you some other task where I put your brain at war with itself, you may not benefit because you're well-practiced at color word Mm -hmm. inhibition, but you may not be practiced at some other form of inhibition. (laughs) So, and actually, it's so funny that you mentioned that because it's very much related to the kind of things that we were doing in my lab. You know, brain training games are so prominent and they're available all over. Like you said, you downloaded an app to do this. But it ends up that there's not a lot of generalizability. There's not a lot of evidence that after doing this game a hundred times, or let even, let's even say through over every day over the course of a year, you might see that your score on the game is getting better and better and better. But now if I transfer to some other task, it's going to be back to where it was as if you'd never seen this kind of task before. Mm-hmm. Okay. So for the research dorks, we got the, the Stroop uh, <laughs> word color is one thing. And you described yeah. the digit. What do we, what's the name of that test? That's called the sustained attention response task. The, the sustained yeah. attention response test. And, and there was a third one. Oh, there's many, many. We could get, we could spend our whole time just talking about tasks, but I'll just, oh, sure. I'll just give you another one that's pretty straightforward. And that is something called the operation span task. And this is a classic way that we index what's called working memory, this ability to maintain and manipulate information over very short intervals. Like I said, the cache or RAM, if you think of a computer analogy uh, for the brain. So we don't need to remember this information forever. We just need to remember it long enough for us to be able to use it. So in the operation span task, what happens is we present a series of letters that you see, and your job is to remember those letters, but intervening between the presentation of the letters will be a simple math problem. So it would be like ADZ, and then you have to do simple math, and then some other set of uh, letters, and then simple math again. And at some point, you'll see a bigger screen that has a whole bunch of letters on it, and you have to click all the ones that were part of those that you were asked to remember. Hmm. And, you know, th- people can do this reasonably well, but it gives us a very solid notion of what the capacity of working memory is, which is essentially the ability to maintain, like I said, the information with this interfering stuff, the simple math, which is requiring work of your brain mm-hmm. and potentially causing problems with you being able to remember it. So you got to work a little extra hard to remember the information. And on those working memory tasks, like this OSPAN task, like I said, 50 years, not really any change in terms of how people perform on it. Uh, so we're not really shrinking in our capacity to pay attention and remember information in this way. Well, you know, that is so fun to hear. Well, one, I guess it gives you more hope for the, our species <laughs> and our future. <laughs> well, and two, it's almost a trope nowadays, like, oh, with digital distractions, our minds are being hijacked. And so you're saying, well, no, according to the measures that we've had for decades, it looks like uh, our attention spans are, are actually doing okay. Is something different? Has something changed? It feels like it has in our experience. Well, both of the things that you said are true. Our attention is more prone to being hijacked and our attention spans are unchanged. Okay. So why is our attention more prone to being hijacked? Because the opportunities for distraction are greater in our day-to-day lives. Okay. So, and those, the way in which we are prone to distraction is because social media companies, technology developers are gaming the way the brain is organized. There's a reason why when you go on a particular website, let's say a social media website, your name is prominent. The content is pretty much tied to what is of interest to you. It's catered to you. There's also a reason why things that are 
fear-inducing, threatening, novel, interesting, grab your attention. In fact, your attention is the commodity, is the product that the that the social media company is selling to make money for its own company. So yes, it absolutely is the case that you are going to be sucked in because not your own failings, but because a team of engineers, not just an engineer or two, but like literally mm. hundreds of hundreds of people have built very sophisticated algorithms that not only know how your attention work, but know precisely how to tune the enticements to your attention so that you will spend as much time as possible on the app. And so, but if you notice the qualities of that information, self-related, threatening, fear-inducing, novel, this is what the brain is tuned for through our evolutionary programming, through our evolutionary development. Of course, it's the case that you'll drop everything and pay attention to something novel, interesting, or threatening, or related to you, because that advantaged your survival over the millennia that humans have existed. So that's what's being sort of gamed and capitalized upon. And that's why the way we're going to have to battle the hijacking of our attention is going to require something different. We can't simply just break up with our phones. We're going to have to do something in a different manner to be able to manage the kind of pull we're going to get on our attention. Very different from saying that there's something wrong with our attention. There is not. I hear you. So in a lab-controlled setting where the smartphone's away, it's like, hey, our, our mental capabilities are, are pretty similar to, to how they've been. But in real life, we've got distraction machines surrounding us like never before. Is that kind of how yes. we've got both things true at the same time? Both things are true at the same time. But I do think it's a point of empowering ourselves to know there's nothing fundamentally broken here. Yeah. Amen. In fact, it's the fact that it's so healthy and so predictable that allows these algorithms to be built around maximizing that. And so part of the responsibility, I frankly think, is on a lot of uh, you know app developers and social media companies and technology companies to be aware of the costs on that and to build in features that might help us monitor better our own engagement with the technology. It doesn't advantage their bottom line, mm -hmm. but it advantages our ability to function healthfully. So that's one answer. I think the other part of the answer is really what I wrote and wanted to share in my book, which is that we can train our own mind, not through brain training games, but through other methodologies that might help us advantage ourselves better because we are training ourselves to be more aware moment by moment of where our attention is to make better choices that favor what we want to accomplish and what we want to do. Well, I was just about to ask that next. So, so this book, Peak Mind, Find Your Focus, Own Your Attention, Invest 12 Minutes a Day. Tell us, what's the big idea here and, and what's the magic of 12 minutes? Yeah, I mean, the big idea is essentially what we started talking about, that, that we live in a world now where it feels like a crisis of attention, even if the objective data tells us our brains are actually fine and healthy. And that crisis of attention feeling, by the way, if we locked ourselves in a room, had no technology, and uh, were really intending to focus, we would discover that our attention is not going to be unwavering. And it's not a modern feature. If we look back yeah. hundreds of years to medieval monks, that they actually did that. They became monastics. They isolated themselves from their families. And then they complained that while they were supposed to be praying, they were worried about lunch or a conversation mm -hmm. they had. So this is also something really to appreciate about the nature of the mind. It is built for distractibility. So even though our capacity for attention has not changed, we are distractible. It's just the way it is. And there's, a again, an evolutionary reason for that. But... It ends up that under certain circumstances, very high stress, high demand circumstances, like the kinds of professional lives of a lot of the people that we study in my laboratory, 
that number, that percentage of time that we're intrinsically distractible goes up. And then we can really suffer a lot of problems so Mm. that our attention is not in the task at hand. We lapse, we make errors, and those can be consequential. Life or death in the case of service members or emergency services professionals, medical professionals, surgeons, for example, or even judges and lawyers. If you miss information, it has consequences. So with regard to the training, well, okay, yes, stress. So that with a stress perspective, I guess I was thinking in some ways, stress can really galvanize your attention. Like, okay, it's do or die. This is the moment. Got to get her done. There's the, the clock is ticking. And, and so in some ways, I, I thought that would, would make us less distractible. You say it can make us more distractible. Can you elaborate? I mean, both again are true. I'm not going to say, okay, you are completely correct, Pete. And what I said is also correct. So it ends up stress is a variable that can range from actually being very helpful to harmful. And we can even think of it as having a shape. So if you think of it, imagine in your mind a graph, and I'm drawing on the graph, the X and the Y axis, and then the shape of the graph itself is an inverted U. So on the X axis, we have stress, low stress, low performance. So the Y axis is performance, the X axis is stress low stress, low performance. As the stress goes up, you start climbing up the U, kind of like the top of a mountain, Mm -hmm. and your performance will reach a sweet spot so that the right amount of stress is going to optimize your performance. But now, if you push past that sweet spot and stress keeps going up, you're on the downward slope where you're actually going to start degrading and depleting your performance relative to having less stress available to you. So we can parse the way we think about stress as U stress, meaning the letters E and U, meaning beneficial stress, Mm -hmm. or distress. And what ends up happening with a lot of the groups that we work with, like I said, service members, first responders, even students for that matter, what might be the optimal amount of stress, that U stress peak point, if you maintain that level of demand over a long period of time, you will start slipping into distress. Mm Mm-hmm. And most of us will not be aware that that is happening. So it's like, think about a student. Oh, I'm really good if I have to cram for a final three nights before I I have to take the final. Now, if you've got seven finals, I guarantee you that cramming approach night after night after night is not going to lead to beneficial results. So it's just important to know that the, the features of stress that I'm talking about that are problematic are really dipping into distress. There's not a match between what you feel like you can accomplish well and your capacity to do so. Oh, really? So we don't even know. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So how, if we don't know, how can we know? I mean, is there an alternative gauge by which we have a sense? Well, we do know, right? It may not be, it may not be our performance that we necessarily are. We're not aware going into it like, oh, my performance is going to suffer here. We don't have that view typically, but we know what it feels like to be distressed. We know it feels too much. So like after the fact, we know. No, even as you're in it, okay. even as you're in it, you're, you're feeling, oh my gosh, this is too much, right? And so what we can know from our objective data is if you take people over a protracted period of high demand, the academic semester, for an athlete, it could be competition season or even preseason training. For a service member, it could be pre-deployment training or de- deployment itself. These are periods of time where you know it's going to be demanding and the demands are not going to let up for some multiple weeks. If we test people's attention with the same kind of tasks we were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. OSPAN and SART and Stroop, and then we come back four to six to eight weeks later and give them the same battery of tasks, if that period intervening between those two time points was very demanding, we will see a significant decline in performance. Okay. And usually we see people reporting that their mood is worse and their self-reported distress is greater. 
Mm-hmm. So that's something to keep in mind is that, you know, it's not just that you feel icky and, and maybe burnt out uh, from a psychological standpoint, but your actual effectiveness is going to be impacted. And what I was interested in doing, again, from this attention research point of view is, look, there are populations, professions for whom they will always have to operate their best when circumstances are likely to drive down attentional functioning. And we know what the features are of of circumstances that are likely to drive down attentional functioning, threatening circumstances, stressful, like we talked about stress, perceived stress uh, that we experience and negative circumstances. So if you think about going into a war zone or going into a fire as a firefighter or uh, having to deal with critical care situations as a nurse or a physician, those are characterizing contexts where attention is going to be compromised. But we want these people to perform at their best because things could be a lot worse if they don't. So I wanted to figure out a way to train people so that they could be almost mentally armored against stress. And that proved to be a really tricky thing to track down, mainly because of what you were saying earlier. There are so many solutions offered right now, like play brain training games or use this device to zap your brain with a small amount of electrical current or... I have a Muse EEG in my hands. (laughs) Exactly. So, and, you know, I'm not going to say anything about Muse in particular or any particular technology, but I'll tell you that in our hands, in my laboratory... When we put, when people were experiencing high demand circumstances, not a lot was helpful to protecting attention from declining. Not a lot. Okay. Not a lot. In fact, I would say probably nothing. It reliably showed protective effects except for one thing. Oh, you got my attention. (laughs) What is it? What do we do? It was a little bit of a surprise to me because I would say I was very skeptical of this solution just for a variety of reasons, which we can talk about. But the one thing that tended to reliably, and now after about 15 years of research in my own lab and many other labs has been shown over and over again, was mindfulness meditation training. Okay. So when people engage in mindfulness meditation training for as little as 12 to 15 minutes a day, during these high stress intervals, we see that those tasks don't decline. People don't decline their performance on those tasks. They actually stay stable over time. And sometimes if they do enough practice, even if the circumstances are are likely to deplete the average person, they can actually improve. So not only stabilize, but potentially optimize attention when everything about the circumstances suggests there would be compromise to attention. Okay. So, so many follow-ups here. Okay. (laughs) So 12 to 15, you say as little as 12 to 15 minutes, I'm curious, is in some ways, I hear that's sort of like the minimum effective dose. Is there like a noticeable point of diminishing returns? Like if 12 to 15 minutes is good, is 120 to 150 minutes 10 times as good? Or how does it break down? Yeah. You know, I mean, I think that this is where we're just at the beginning of the science. And my interest in the research program that I'm engaged in was really to ask that first level question. These are time pressured people. We're trying to get them in the busiest, most stressful periods of their lives. What do they absolutely need to try to do to to benefit themselves? And it's not one shot, 12 minutes or 15 minutes. It's over the course of multiple weeks daily. So it's like from the physical training point of view, would walking around the block at a leisurely pace be enough to actually improve my cardiovascular health? Or do I need to run or jog at some or walk briskly at some level for a certain amount of time? And the answer tends to be around, you know, maybe 20 to 30 minutes a day of brisk walking or jogging can be more beneficial than a leisurely walk. So I wanted to know that. I wanted to know what the kind of minimum dose was. And the way we were able to find this out was not by prescribing people various amounts of training to do and then seeing kind of like a maybe a pharmacologic study where you give people 
different sized pills and say, okay, this pill is the one that worked. You know, humans, especially complex human behavior, it doesn't work that way. So what we ended up doing is we went to the literature and said, okay, what is typically done? Because mindfulness training, even though I was one of the first labs to bring it into context like the military or, or elite sports, mindfulness training had been along, around not only for millennia from the wisdom traditions, but even for several decades prior to our work beginning in the military in the medical setting. And it was through a program called Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, which is yeah. uh, developed by a wonderful colleague of mine, John Kabat-Zinn, offered in medical clinics over 750 or more now around the world usually offered for people that are suffering from intractable physical conditions that nobody else can help them. So chronic pain, for example, people come into the clinic, they take a course for about eight weeks, they practice 45 minutes a day, and there there are benefits. There are benefits to their body, to their mind, to their relationships, and now even uh, brain imaging studies suggest that those are benefits. But for the kind of groups that I was working with, 45 minutes a day was a non-starter. Nobody was going to do that. So in our initial studies, when, for example, working with pre-deployment Marines, we asked them to do 30 minutes a day during pre-deployment, like I said. Nobody did 30 minutes a day. I mean, maybe on occasion, one or two people did it. But on average, people were doing, well, actually, I can't even, before I even talk about on average, that was just a huge range. Mm -hmm. Some people did what we said very rarely, but they did it. Other people did zero. And then we had all the combinations in between. So we decided to take a data emergent approach because just telling them what to do didn't mean that they would do it. And instead we said, okay, what, what is the amount of time that the people that tend to benefit, what is the amount of time that they're doing? And it ended up that it was about 12 minutes or more that they were doing. Mm -hmm. And those that did less than 12 minutes really weren't benefiting. In fact, they looked no different than the people that didn't get the training at all. So then in the subsequent studies, we said, okay, if 12 minutes is some kind of sweet spot, let's only tell them to do it for 12 minutes. Let's prescribe them. Let's record guided practices that are 12 minutes long. And first of all, let's see if they do it more often. And they did. And now let's see what the benefits are. And what we found was that it was not just doing the 12-minute practices, which, like I said, people were much more willing to do than 30-minute practices, but it was doing them about five days a week where we started seeing benefits. Mm -hmm. So this is how study after study, we were starting to triangulate around the formula for a minimum effective dose. Now, you're asking the great question, which is, what about the under, other end? I want to optimize. I want to be superhuman. I want to do like, I want to be Olympian level attention. Mm -hmm. What do I do then? Well, you got three years in to go on a, a, a mindfulness retreat and practice uh, mindfulness practices, 12 mm -hmm. to 14 hours a day. You could do that, right? So there are people that are in that range. There are people, for example, monastics who devote their lives to intensive retreat practices. And those are very compelling types of data. And that's a whole field of research. Unfortunately, because of the nature of the groups that I work with, they don't have the option of doing that. And it's frankly right. just not my interest to look at that. But there is a world of beyond the minimum effective dose where we're learning just as you'd expect, like an Olympic, Olympic level athlete is going to be much more capable than somebody who just starts a couch to 5K. Same thing is true for mindfulness training and the kind of brain changes you see. In terms of specifically quantifying it, we're not quite there yet, but I think this gives you a sense that there is a minimum effective dose, but the more you do, the more you benefit. Mm -hmm. Okay, lovely. And so we'll get into some of the particulars of, of mindfulness uh, meditation training in terms of how that's done. I, I guess I'd, I'd love to hear we talk about the benefits. Like, what does that mean in terms of uh, quantitativeness? So we talked about attention decrements. Yeah. Uh, it's like it's worse. <laughs> yeah. Attention being worse uh, when when you don't do it. Can you, could you maybe just 
contextualize or, or, or share some numbers is like, am I going to be able to focus like a smidgen better, like 3% better if I do my 12 to 15 minutes a day, five days a week, or, or, or kind of what's the roughly speaking size of the prize for the average professional? Yeah. I and mean, we're talking between something like that, between five and 10% better. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and, and what's the numerator in- denominator we're measuring with better well, let's just take one very specific task, the sustained attention response task. Like I said, you're going to press a button every time you see a digit. When you see a three, you withhold. People typically press to the three 50% of the time, even though they're not supposed to. Okay. And this is usually because they are mentally time traveling away. Mm-hmm. They're hijacked away. They're, they're kind of go on autopilot and they just press, press, press. The three appears, they press, and then they might have it. Oh, shoot, you know, they, they realize they've made a mistake too late. You already pressed. So that is the baseline under high stress. That number goes up. People press to the three even more often. And with mindfulness training, we see that they can benefit with a about 10% improvement from their baseline. Mm -hmm. And so what does that mean? Right. And you might say, well, that's okay, great. So I don't press to the three. Why do I care? Like, why does that matter? What we think it represents is really this ability to be more present centered, because you're noting what's happening moment by moment. You're not defaulting to autopilot. It also translates into really a correspondence with actual activities. So for example, in the context of of soldiers, you know, if you're doing a shoot, no shoot drill, so that you know that you are to shoot to the bad guys and withhold from the innocent civilians. Mm-hmm. And if you're making that level of mistakes, a 10% improvement is giant. It actually means life or death benefits for people. And uh, those are numbers that really matter and are actionable for people to not make grave errors that could cost them for their entire lives. So, I mean, we're, I'll just tell you that we're just at the beginning of now trying to translate laboratory-based metrics into what we call operationally relevant metrics. How does it translate into real life? But we're starting to be able to ask those questions to see in the kinds of tasks that people do. So, for example, medical errors, what is the actionable benefit for mindfulness training on the rate of medical errors? And again, you know, this is now data that's just starting to be gathered. So I can't give you precise numbers. We're really on the edge of this knowledge right now, but we're asking the right questions to say, okay, attention may be protected and benefited. How does it matter? And how does it show up in people's lives? But even before we go to the objective, what we notice people saying is that they're more there, like they're, they're not wandering away, the quality of their own relationships is improved. Their leadership capacity is improved. Uh, Their ability to do their jobs and feel engaged in their jobs is improved. So, you know, that's just painting the picture of where we are at the science in the moment. Mm -hmm. And that's interesting. I can't help but run some numbers in terms of an eight hour workday, five to 10% more attentive minutes. Yeah. It's, It's very rough and crude. That is significant, you know, to the tune of that 24 to 48 extra minutes, which is a lot more than 12 to 15 in terms of a profitable endeavor for us. Yeah. And those are just estimates right now. You know, I mean, I think that it's probably a lot even more than that. If you think about the nature of what kinds of processes improve. So it's not just uh, being able to pay attention, which is just Mm -hmm. so important, but mood improves. Uh, work enjoyment and engagement improve. Presenteeism is going down. You know, there's a whole bunch of, there's a whole literature on mindfulness in the workplace that is now revealing the benefits for organizations to offer this in the workplace context. Mm-hmm. 
And not just as a salve for like, you know, oh, you feel burnt out here, just go take some mindfulness, which is sort of the backlash against offering it. But people going to it on their own and now finding that just like having a, a gym in your in your office building can help you, having courses available through their workplace may motivate them to actually be more likely to give it a try. There's an ease about being able to incorporate it. And then, of course, moving forward, it may actually impact work culture mm-hmm. so that, you know, it's very normal to begin a meeting with... Uh, as my colleagues at the Search Inside Yourself uh, Leadership Institute say, a moment to arrive. It's like every meeting, people are probably wandering way more than 50% of the time. But what if we make it part of the culture that we're actually here? What if you can cut meeting times down because you don't have to repeat yourselves or there's not conflicting and uh, Mm -hmm. ambiguous information being thrown around because more people are really there. They're not on their phone and they're not off in their own mental time travel. Right. And they're not saying semi-relevant things (laughs) exactly they're saying fully relevant things which prevents all of the side tangents that never needed to to occur because that's not quite relevant to what we're trying to achieve in this meeting yeah but it's absolutely but i don't think it's part of most workplaces to take the attentional state of every member of the team seriously and to make it an explicit priority for everybody to show up but if that could happen and and there are ways to train everybody's minds to do that for themselves and then do it collectively, that could be really, really powerful. So actually some of the work we're doing right now with the military, the kind of edge of our our work uh, in active projects is looking at team-based mindfulness. What happens when an entire squad that works together, and this is by the way known in the context of, of medical teams, when there's more, when there's mindfulness practiced by the individuals and and even a nod toward what we might call collective mindfulness, Team cohesion can improve. The sense of belonging can improve. Conflict between team members can go down. And this can all relate to their productivity as well as their fulfillment in the work that they do. Mm-hmm. That's cool. All right. So mindfulness meditation training. It's come up a few times on the show. What does that really mean we're doing in practice? Yeah. This is one of the one of those interesting things about a term like mindfulness being so common these days. Like I mean, people have heard it probably at some point. And like you said, you've even had it come up on, on your show. So let me just take you through why it ended up, I think, being such a powerful solution for our work that was really focused on attention. And if you don't mind, I'd love to say a little bit about what attention is, because we've also kind of been using that word in a, in a blanket way. Okay. And I really, I like to break it down as sort of, there's this uh, giant concept of attention, which is really, broadly speaking, the ability to prioritize some information over other information. And we evolved this ability to solve a big problem that the brain had, which is that there's just way more out there in the world and even generated within our mind than we can fully process in any moment. So this notion and process of prioritization allows us to have more fine-tuned and granular information accessible to us while everything else sort of fades into the background. So something is prominent and other things are not. And when we think about the topic of attention and the way it's been studied, we're learning that there's probably three main ways that we pay attention. In fact, three main brain systems that support these different ways of paying attention. So the first way is really just probably the way we've been using it kind of without even talking about it explicitly, focus. The notion that there's content. And like just right now, I'm looking at your face. I'm not looking at the curtains behind you or whatever the door behind you, you know, whatever I see, I'm able to focus in on on the granular details, seeing the expression on your face, et cetera. Everything else kind of fades into the background. 
So the, the metaphor for this that I like to use is like a flashlight. If I were in a darkened room, wherever I direct that flashlight, I'm going to get crisp, clear, privileged information relative to everything that's darkened around it. Attention really does the same thing in this kind of flashlight metaphor, something called the orienting system of attention. And by the way, this is that same system that we talked about that ends up being a problem with social media and uh, the pull on our attention. Because just like a flashlight, we can direct orienting willfully. We can decide where we want to point our attention. We can move it around. We can direct it toward the external environment or the internal environment. Like if I said, Pete, what is the sensation right now of uh, the bottoms of your feet? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Probably before I said that, you yeah. had no idea. You weren't thinking about it. But True. now you can check in and give me an answer. I'm on a standing mat. It's got a cushiony vibe to it. Yeah. Squishy and pleasant, probably. Mm-hmm. But that same flashlight can get yanked. And the kinds of things that yank it have those features of salient, self-related, threatening, novel, like all these kinds of things that are programmed into us. So, But that's still just one system of attention, this kind of flashlight or orienting system. Another way we can pay attention is not privileging content, but privileging time. So what's happening right now? That's something that we call the alerting system. And and if you want to think about when we use this, like driving down the road or walking down the road, you see a flashing yellow traffic light or something near a construction sign, you know, something that's blinking and alarming. You're at the ready. You're broad, receptive, alert, but you don't want to be focused in on anything because you have no idea what could be coming. It could be weird equipment joining into the road or children or traffic patterns are weird. Something's odd and pay attention to what's happening right now. So we can privilege content, like with the flashlight, or privilege time with the alerting system. And then the third way in which we can privilege information with attention is something called executive control, which we've definitely already talked about as it relates to sort of working memory. We're privileging information processing based on our goals. So what is my goal right now? And is my action and what I'm paying attention to and doing, meaning the way I'm directing the other two systems, is it aligned to ensure that the actions and the goals are going to be aligned the whole way? Or am I off goal? (laughs) Or am I not even sure what the goal is? Like These are ways in which we pay attention that can be so powerful, but quite different. Going back to your question regarding mindfulness, one of the reasons I think it ended up being super useful is that mindfulness training, which is essentially, I would describe as paying attention to our present moment experience without elaboration or reactivity without having a story about it, attention is central to mindfulness. And when you think about mindfulness practices, they actually engage and exercise all three of these systems of attention over and over again in a generalizable manner. So, you know, just to give you quickly, like one practice might be mindfulness of paying attention to breath-related sensations. If we talk through that, you'd see every one of these systems is actually engaged. Cool. All right. So so that's uh, an overview of the, the three things that we're, we're talking about here. And so when we, when we do a mindfulness meditation training, you mentioned paying attention to the present, what's up right now, presently, without sort of elaborating or creating stories. So that's kind of could incorporate a, a whole bundle of different activities. Totally. So what are some of your faves. (laughs) Yeah. So, and this is where, again, we borrow from the existing literature. We didn't invent all these things and the existing traditions, frankly, but one very, very common one is mindfulness of the breath. I actually don't call it mindfulness of the breath in the way that I teach it because I know the vulnerabilities when we say that. I call it the find your flashlight practice. (laughs) And really it's because 
that flashlight is such a handy way to think about how we can willfully direct our attention. But what we have to get insight into is oftentimes we don't know where our attention is. We have no clue. So the way that you, I'm just going to give you a very kind of quick view of this. So it, it is essentially the same thing as other people might describe as mindfulness of the breath or focused attention. There's so many different terms for it. But essentially what you do is sit in a comfortable, quiet spot, dedicate a period of time we're going to do this practice. And the first step is essentially to notice that you're breathing. And, you know, obviously we've been breathing this entire time, but we haven't probably been paying attention to our breath. But we're checking into the fact that we're breathing, and then we're going to notice what is most vivid in the breathscape of our present moment experience. And that's actually why I think the breath is so handy. You can't save up your breath. I mean, I guess you could hold your breath, but you can't really save it up. It's happening. It's transpiring in the moment. And literally, it is about a respiratory rhythm. Mm -hmm. So we notice what is most vivid tied to the breath. And that's where we devote. We say, for this period of time, my task, my goal Executive control says, my goal is pay attention to breath-related sensation. Take that flashlight, point it toward the prominent breath-related sensation, and hold it there. That's the agenda for this, let's say, you know, let's say you start out by just doing one minute of this practice. Then the second part of the instruction, the first part is just focus, focus on breath-related sensation, engage that flashlight. The second part of the instruction is notice if your mind wanders away. So it's like you're checking in and monitoring, where is this flashlight? You know, is it at the breath-related sensation? All of a sudden, you're like thinking of the next vacation you're going to take or, you know, some worry you had or a troubling conversation or maybe there's an itch on your face or whatever it is. Ah, look at that. Flashlight's not at the breath-related sensation. And in that moment, the third part of the instruction, redirect attention back to breath-related sensations. So it's literally like uh, my military colleagues, I love the way they put it. It's like, you're giving me a mental push-up. Focus, notice, redirect. Or in other words, engage the flashlight, engage alerting and monitoring, and then executive control to know what the goal is and make sure I'm getting back on track. Mm -hmm. So that's why I think that it can be so handy to understand how attention works, because then we understand why we're doing it. It's not sort of some nebulous concept. It's actually a workout for our mind in this particular way. Mm, Lovely. Okay. Well, well, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. You know, I think the main thing is just I love the topics that you cover on your on your pod, and I love how like actionable you want to make it for people. So one of the things I would just encourage people to kind of be left with is this notion to really pay attention to their attention and to realize that the mind, just like the body, needs some kind of daily exercise to keep it psychologically fit and performing well. And what we've happened upon in my own research is learning that this very simple practice, not always easy, but simple practice done for not that long every day, about 12 minutes a day, can actually powerfully benefit the way that we operate and the way that we feel. So give it a try. All right. Thank you. And how about a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Oh, Yogi Berra, you can observe a lot by just watching. And a favorite study? Oh, gosh. Then I'm going to be probably picking one of my own because we've done so many really cool ones. A favorite study recently is one where we were able to benefit uh, the attention and mood of military spouses by training other military spouses to offer mindfulness training to their peers. Oh, cool. So that was really exciting because now it shows us a path forward to have this all proliferate. Mm -hmm. And a favorite book? I would say I'm going to pick something completely uh, uncharacteristic. Uh, It's a book of poems by Rumi. Okay. What's it called? Oh, God. I don't know. The Essential Rumi. I think it's called The Essential Rumi. Okay. Yeah. Sure. And a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job. 
Oh, you know, it's a double-edged sword, but I'd say actually my phone Mm -hmm. to use my timer to practice every day. And is there a key nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks? They quote it back to you often? Yes. And maybe that would go to a quote, but it's really kind of more of a concept. Thoughts are not facts. Okay. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? They can, if they remember my name, they can find me, amishi.com, A-M-I-S-H-I.com. Okay. And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs. Yeah, I would say invest in yourself and invest in your attention. And do that by starting slow and starting small and really practice paying attention in this way using the tools of mindfulness. All right. Amishi, thank you. This has been a treat. I I wish you much luck in your peak mind activities. (laughs) Thank you so much. I love so much of what Amishi had to say. And in particular, I liked the notion that our species is not screwed. Uh, This notion of attention being not as plentiful and as under our control as we wish it would be has been the case for centuries. And on the metrics, uh, we are not getting worse, despite uh, the prevalence of social media and devices and stuff. So that's cool. That we, we still got it in us as a species. Go humans. That's, that's great news. And that flashlight metaphor, I find it so helpful. And the notion that thoughts are not facts is that we have no obligation to go down a thought train. We could choose to go down it or we could choose not to go down it. And our ability to make that choice and roll with or stick with that choice is enhanced when we do these practices. And I love the metaphor of a flashlight because it's like, yeah, that stuff that you're not pointing the flashlight at in your brain isn't just like gone forever. It's just like, that's not what I'm intending to at the moment. I've chosen to point my flashlight in this direction and that's where I'm at right now. All right. Oh, redirect the flashlight. It's all good. No big deal. Good stuff. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP734. Hope to catch you next time and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.